Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Bowlology Report. Uh, the Olympics are over. Weren't they fantastic to watch? And the Aussie athletes were supreme as always. Not so much our cricketers. We got the silver medal. In Bangladesh, in the T20 cricket, not a lot of highlights. Nathan Ellis got a hat-trick on debut. We'll be speaking to him later in the show. But the middle-order woes, which have uh, hit our T20 cricket team for years, uh, was a real problem again. And who better to talk about finishing up in the middle order, dominating in that space, one of our greatest white ball cricketers of all time. We called him the finisher. He's also known as the, the hammerhead. If you saw him on the mast singer, it's of course Michael Bevan. Bevan, welcome to the show. Welcome, mate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What, what's the three fingers? Why are you holding up three, three fingers? Three T20 matches I played in my career. I just want you to know that before you ask me any hard hitting T20 questions. That's all. The, the finisher. If you're a finisher in 50 over cricket, there's still a role in 50 and T20 cricket. So I'll be asking about that, but. I just want to go back a little bit to to your your singing fans, and you, you've done a bit of reality yeah. TV in your time. But uh, the Australian Mars singer, when you took what, what song did you sing? And then also when you took the uh, the hammerhead off, and, and and to massive applause, did you think my life has peaked? Well, there's not too many times that I've had better experiences than that. Today is one of them. You know, speaking to you yep. and your 40 followers, that's got to be up there, obviously. Are you um, going to get me two extra, are you? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, no, look, the the um, the Masked Singer, when I took that off, well, sorry, the song that I sang, Jimmy Barnes' Working Class Man. Now, when, Ooh, yeah. when they proposed that, I didn't think I could pull it off. I just, I mean, clearly Jimmy Barnes is just, you know, his his voice and vocals are spectacular. So I didn't think I could pull it off. But um, and but it's a it's a sing along. It's a sing along that helps, I reckon. It's a sing along. What do you mean? Working class man. Oh well, yeah. Look, but it it is, and you know, I I listen to him a lot. You know, you probably know that. I mean, yeah. In in my early days, so um, look, I loved his music and I loved the song, but he's got a beast of a beast of yeah. a voice, right? So I wasn't sure if if I could get there, but in the end, I you know I thought I did a pretty pretty reasonable job. The the judges didn't think I did. Obviously, got booted out first first up. Um, I think you came eleventh, didn't you? Yeah. Out of ten, how did that work out? Yeah, no, I, I um, certainly exited it really quick, um, and I think that I mean I, I faced off against the kitten who was Julia Morris, um, <laughs> like, and you know what? I had her beat. I had her beat without a doubt. Um, so I was very surprised to to, to leave that show on the first uh, the first first one out. Oh, you're Rob, not for the first time in your career. Was there any correlation? You know that period of euphoria of taking the hammerhead off? Was there a correlation to uh, New Year's Eve 1995 when you hit Harper for four to win the game off the last ball? And straight away, you always knew the big moment. You took the helmet off. You always had the glamour smile. Very similar sort of euphoria moments. Yeah, didn't have the hair 20 years later. but Uh, yeah. yeah, But, and, you know, look, the, everyone says 
the day I hit the four off the last ball. I was there. I was there. <laughs> um, um, but the, tr- <laughs> the truth was we were getting our butts kicked. It had rained. Everyone thought we were going to lose. And so half the crowd left. At the start of the match, we had 40,000 40, at the game. Um, and then it, it went to about 20. And, look, I, I don't blame them because I thought we were going to get our butts kicked too, in all honesty. When you know, I thought we had no chance of winning it. Um, and so a very similar situation in the Mars Singer because, as you would know, like the year before COVID, like a huge studio audience, huge. Um, and then the time that I did it, there was no one there. So I sort of took the hammerhead off and no one was there, oh. no crowd. Um, and that was the hard thing about doing the Masked Singer because you were only singing to the four judges. Like, it was really weird. That was I found it really tough. And so when I took it off, it was actually more embarrassing because everyone knew who you were then. Like, I wish I could have had to, wish I could have kept it on, the, the uh, hammer. <laughs> And, and any positives? Have you found that you're, you're mentoring a lot of the potential mass singers now? Um, yeah, also getting into the design side of things, you know, costumes, all that yeah. type of stuff. So lots lots going on around that space. Um, it, really, it really was a shrewd strategic career move for me. Yeah, talking about shrewd manoeuvres, what about your... You're known as, you know, Dean Jones, you know, initiated great change, batting at three, uh, particularly, you know, he had a lot of charisma, uh, but he's running between the wickets and hitting gaps and all that. You, you got labelled finisher, being able to to get us home more times than not. How did, how did you refine that sort of game, being such a gun in, in uh, t- oh, sorry, in 50-over cricket? Well, strangely enough, it always sort of happened naturally for me. I, for, for whatever reason, I always feel felt comfortable finishing the match, being there at the end of the match, um, and I always felt comfortable that I could score the amount of runs required. And I think probably the first couple of examples, of first couple of matches that I that I knew I could finish matches really well was a when I moved from the ACT to South Australia for the academy. Uh, I played for a grade club there um, and we made the finals. And I think I scored 100 there in the final of a one-day match to help win them the uh, the competition. And then, again, it happened not long after, maybe a year or two after, but I you probably would have been playing, but... Was it the Victoria New South Wales Merck final at yeah, the SCG? You got him home, yeah. Because I remember Chuck just going off at me, like I hit a couple, whipped a couple over mid wicket um, into the gap there once or twice, um, and I don't know if it was expected then, but it sort of kind of happened in that situation or in that match. So I've sort of always, I've never had to sort of work at it. Um, and I think the other thing that was was in my favour too is that, you know, around our time there was a real transition there from sort of one-day cricket as it used to have been played in Australia to, you know, because uh, you remember they used to choose guys, the same team for both both formats. Yeah. Um, and no one had really ever thought about playing one-day cricket. And so there was a few guys, including myself, you know, guys like Buff, all those that sort of had... Uh, more shots at their disposal or greater options or the ability to work the singles or to, you know, a different type of game that that fitted and suited one-day cricket at that point in time. So whenever you sort of come into a, a team where the previous era sort of hadn't worked on the strategy around one-day cricket and how to improve it, it made it a little little easier, I guess, because... You you were doing that. You were thinking about how to score more quickly, how to rotate, uh, and building a game that would allow you to sort of perform well at it, I suppose. And what about with your peak in the Australian team, 50-over cricket? Were you someone that, that worked backwards? You know, I remember hearing you talk a couple of times, you know, you, you knew 
you were trying to work out who'd be bowling, which over, you know, if it was a gun bowling the, the, the 50th or 48th, so you might target the 47th, 49th. You know, did you start to evolve that way in your finishing? Oh, definitely. I mean, I always approached it that way. Number one, I needed to be there at the end, and I felt that that was my job. Um, uh, now, and secondly, oh, well, secondly, there was a, probably a limit that I could go to. So it's different nowadays. I don't know if it's 10, 10 and over or 12 and over, but I always felt my limit was about seven and over for five overs or something like that, that I, that, that was possible. But as soon as it got to that, I was uncomfortable. So I sort of always knew that I could, as long as it didn't get above seven for about seven and over for five overs or six and over for ten overs, I knew I could cover it off and and um, still win the match. So I sort of had thresholds or goals that sort of I worked to. But, but you're right. I mean, the other things that I did is I really took into the into account the bowlers that I was facing. So, you know, the things that made my decision in terms of what shots that I needed to play and what I needed to do to minimise risk was take into account which bowlers I was best suited to. Um, I used to take in the pitch conditions. Um, so there might be, you know, um, conditions that suited medium pace bowling, fast bowling or quicks. Uh, conversely, my game more um, more. So I would then target bowlers based on that. I would also target bowlers based on field positions. So sometimes they would, yeah. they, you know, they would get the field wrong. So you would have to employ a certain four or a, you know, a boundary option that enabled you to take advantage of the um, fielding position. So I felt what I was really good at was really minimising risk and tactically choosing the right boundary options uh, for every situation. And so I guess when we're talking about T20 cricket nowadays, those principles still apply, probably more so, but every batsman has to work out what is my best boundary option at any given time based around all those aspects, match situation, pitch conditions, field settings, the bowlers, and Lastly, my strengths. So when, um, you know, when when you're talking to batsmen or when batsmen are trying to perform or when you're coaching batsmen, I think the hard thing is you've got to sift through all this stuff to sort of help them identify um, in, in sim- simple terms as possible what, what options they should be choosing at any given time. And it's not the easiest thing to do. That's why I think sort of batting coaching can be quite difficult. And as a batsman, it can be sort of quite hard to become consistent. Um, so they're the sort of things that, you know, we always face as, as cricketers, I suppose, and batsmen. Yeah, I mean, you've summed up a lot of things there. One is knowing your own game and then then you can build a plan and then once you've got a plan and, and, and maybe you fail a couple of times is, well, why did I fail? Do I have to actually add my options? And, and that's how you keep evolving. And in some ways, T20's 50 overs on steroids, isn't it? That the finishing role now, though, you know, in 50 over cricket, you might get overs to get yourself in. But T20 now, you might have a couple of balls. Well, of course. And, you know, um, the, the the number of... Uh, boundary options that, and the number of um, attacking shots the batsmen have nowadays are far in excess of what we have. Um, and so it shouldn't be a huge leap or a huge change for these guys because they, they simply have more options to choose from um, and have built a game you know, that that suits and fits the shorter format uh, that T20 is. Um, But they still sort of have to make the same sort of decisions. Perhaps not in the first six overs um, um, and perhaps not even in the last five overs, but there's still that sort of space where, where in the middle overs you've got to go at a good clip, but you've got to do it really well. And so... You know, you can't. Strike rate's important, but also 
average is important as well because you can't have someone score 20 off 10. You need someone to score 30 off 20 or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's become an interesting test in those middle overs in T20 cricket, I reckon. And Bevo, back to your game, you you mentioned Darren Lehman and because we're the same age and played, you know, underage cricket against each other together, you know, we saw, I thought, not that you batted the same, but you were extravagant batsmen. You know, you scored quickly, you were hard to contain. Um, Your innovations, I remember you were one of the first to charge fast bowlers and hit them back over their head or or you'd take the mickey out of us, like, look at us and you've opened up the face and hit it down to, to third man. Lehman stayed like that for the whole career, but but there was changes or evolvement to your game. Do you remember making that decision? Uh, did 50-over cricket influence your, your longer um, four-day and test batting? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I kind of, and I think Steve Wall went through the same thing Um uh, he used to be pretty flamboyant. I mean, the the War Brothers are pretty pretty exceptionally talented guys, um, and they had a lot of shots when the, when they played as yeah. well. I know Steve went through that phase where he really brought uh, cut the number of shots out and just played 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 them really well. So you're right. I think that happened to me at about the age of 27. I I I, I really didn't have a plan. I had a lot of shots, but there was no tactics or strategy when I used them or why I used them. And so I think at the age of 27, I sort of pulled my game back in and decided to, to that rather than work on lots of different shots and improve the shots, I would just concentrate on a smaller number of shots but, but play them well. And so, so I did that at about the age of 27. And then funnily enough, at low 30s or, you know, when I was 30, yeah, early 30s, I actually went back and probably <laughs> started to play more shots again um, as, you know, because because I wanted to challenge myself or I, I knew I wasn't going to get back in the test team and I had to do something that where people would take note, et cetera, et cetera. So I sort of did both. I, I, I went into Michelle midway through my career, played less shots, was less extravagant, probably improved my consistency and my average and the amount of runs I scored. Uh, and then, you know, for the last few Years I sort of left the handbrake off again, and started, you know, started um, started playing playing my playing like my old self, yeah. And so we'll we'll talk about the test career, and it didn't play out the way you would have thought of after that first tour of Pakistan. Your averages against Pakistan and the West Indies are very high, um, and then you got that persona as with the short ball, but to think that you got runs against. Ambrose, Walsh, Akram and Eunice and, you know, at state level, you know, the short ball was an option to you, but it wasn't as if we felt like it was a weakness. You've had time to reflect on it. What what, what are your sort of thoughts in hindsight about how short your test career and what you could have done differently? Well, yeah. Actually, and, and to add to that, sorry to add to that, did did the all-rounder role mess with it as well? You know, that phase where you were the second spinner and successful under Warney, then you dropped down the order. Did, did that muddle the waters a little bit as well? It did muddy the waters, but it didn't affect my batting. Um, I think there was separate issues I had with that. Um, and you're right, like my first series against Pakistan, against two super quicks, uh, I did really well. Uh, I did re- really well against the West Indies. I think I averaged 55 and 60 against Pakistan and West Indies and then averaged 10 and 13 against <laughs> England, who at, who at the time didn't well, didn't have this, the, the quality of the bowling attack that, that, that those teams had. And so for me, one of my huge issues, it kind of manifested itself in the fact that I didn't play the short ball well or I kept going out getting out to it, but it happened because I was so inconsistent. Um, And, look, if I had averaged 55 and 60 against the West Indies of Pakistan and then averaged 25 or 30 against England, I probably would have played a lot more test cricket. But because I only averaged 10 or 13, you know, it was just no contest. They had to drop me. And so, and I also had five years of playing first-class cricket, of playing the short ball and never had any issues. So Mm -hmm. it, it was kind of like, 
getting the yips as a putter in golf for me. It, it sort of took on this presence that was stronger than it needed to be, and it was kind of self-inflicted. And one of the reasons why it was self-inflicted was because one of the challenges that I faced as a person was just the mental game, the mental aspect and my confidence and self-esteem. And when you're playing for Australia, it sort of doesn't give you any second chances. It's quite confronting because you're playing in front of hundreds of thousands of people on TV, you're on the back page of every newspaper all the time. And one of the things that happens is you're going to get criticism and you're going to receive criticism and they're going to tell you you're not great. And for me, they kind of told me that I wasn't great at the short ball. And so I suppose that took on, it manifested to more than what it should have been. And I didn't really, um, I didn't really handle it that well, I don't think. And so what happened with my career is I actually believed it was a short ball issue. So I sort of went back to the drawing board when I wasn't playing for Australia after 22, um, 95, around 95, 94, around that time. And I went back and worked on the short ball like every day of the week. And it was kind of like, <laughs> you know, I can't play the short, short ball. I'll show them how to do it and blah, blah, blah. So I, I got another chance in 97. And I kept getting out of the bloody short ball. Um, <laughs> so I, I and and the other thing that didn't help either, Bevo, is the competition for spots. You know, you, oh. you played in, in the era where, you know, there were some people who even played less tests than you that were, that were fine players. So you, you couldn't afford to give up your spot. That's right. And, I, and when I was trying to get back in the team, you know, you had to average 50 or 60 just to get, just to get back in. Um, so... Yeah, look, it was a learning experience for me, um, but it wasn't around. It wasn't around the short ball, the technical aspect. In the end, for me, it became about sort of confidence, self esteem, letting go. Um, you know, not questioning yourself, and um, sort of just having a clear mind, and you know, not thinking about too many things. So for me. Like, because I'm a bit of a thinker, I'm a bit of an analytical guy. So that was the hardest thing for me to do is just switch my brain off. Um, you know, it was my biggest challenge. And then invariably, when I did do that, you know, there were times, as I said, the first, first my first test series against Pakistan, I played brilliantly. The My first full season of, of uh, first-class cricket for New South Wales, I sort of scored five centuries in five matches and I... You know, those were the times where I just let go. I didn't think I wasn't putting any pressure on myself. And so, yeah, I, I think by the end of the, my career, and I think in 2004, 2005, when I finished playing for Australia and went and played for Tasdia, I sort of had another one of those seasons where I scored multiple hundreds and, you know, I just didn't put any pressure on myself. But I'd learnt how to do that. So it was more of a it wasn't a it wasn't a chance or it wasn't a um by luck. It was, you know, look, I kind of know how to score runs now. So do you think the future of specialist coaching is more going down that path? Less working on technique, a balance of technique, but also um finding what actually gets them into the, the play, into their zone and helping them stay there. Yeah, look, I mean, I think as a batting coach and as a coach, it's it's sort of multifaceted. And I think one of the things that I've learned and you try to try to achieve is just just don't offer advice too quickly when you're speaking to batsmen. I mean, because you need to sort of ask, you know, lots and lots of questions to get a bit of an understanding about that gives you an understanding about what's going on and gives them an understanding about what's going on. So inevitably for me, and I don't know about other questions, but I need to understand what they need to work on. So as a, you know, as a, as a, as a batter, do they need help around skills? Um, do they need help around mindset? Do they need help around uh, motivation? Do they need help around goals and game plans? What are they at the moment? Do they need to work on their confidence? And so 
for me, when I'm speaking with someone, I definitely have all these things going in the back of the mind and I sort of a place where I want to take guys to, but I want to explore what they're currently doing at the moment and to get a really good understanding about what their strengths and weaknesses are in all the spheres that I've mentioned. So once that happens, then you can start to sort of suggest, you know, what, you know, what things can you put in place for them to work in on their game? So, so for instance, if I was coaching in a, one of these competitions that only goes for two months, I mean, look, I, I, I just don't touch technique. Um, I yeah. don't touch the number of shots they have or the quality of the shots they have because that's a long-term fix. Um, so I wouldn't coach anyone if I had two months to work with. I'd simply... Um, Try and try and get them clear on sort of some some goals, um, their mindset, so they're really just clear what they're looking to achieve when they walk out of bat. And quite often, that helps tremendously as long as you're just super clear on what it is you're trying to achieve, and those things that you're trying to achieve actually have meaningful impact, um, you know, and control. 20% of your performance as opposed to 1% of your performance, like trying to play a cover drive or working on something like that, then that's kind of my approach in that circumstance. Um, so, so really giving them tools to coach themselves um, on the field. And, and just on that theme, you, you presented at a level three. I think you're still playing for Tassie, and I, I might get the terminology wrong here, but your theory at that time was that the head, the heart, and the hips or hands. Can you talk? Can you remember that philosophy you had, and, and where did it come from? Yeah, well, that's a look. That's a really basic philosophy, and it, it actually came from a oh, an executive coach, an American executive coach who was a who who was loved his biomechanics. He was a doctor, but he was, and I met him in England, and he was. I just said, look, I've got this problem. I can't. Can't get back into the Australian side. They're not picking me. What do I do? I've had an issue around the short ball for so many, so many years. Um, and he was one of the like, even though he wasn't an out-and-out cricket coach, and he wasn't a cricketer, and he had no idea. He had a strong, basic fundamental, basic fundamentals around mechanics, um, and also coaching and how to integrate skills into your game. And so I invited him over to Australia for a couple of weeks where he just took me through his process, helped me learn how to play the short ball and how to introduce it into my game. And and he was a re- it was a really good co- he was a really good coach. Um, but his principle was look the the areas or the aspects that you've got to work on are your head, uh, the main parts that that are going to drive well, from a batting perspective, you, you kind of work around two things. You, you work around power and you work around safety. So it's, it's the, the, how the head, hands and hips relate to power and safety. And so an example of that, like it's pretty basic. I mean, everyone who... Yeah, but it's like a, a pre-ball routine. Everyone needs one, I reckon, to stay in the present. So I was two deep breaths, off stump rhythm power. So I can do that whether I'm having a good day or bad day. It was controllable, kept me centred for that that next ball. Yeah, and that's, I mean, and that's another aspect that you do try and work with batsmen on, like mental cues, because um, those mental cues have to actually relate back to one of those main aspects um, that you want to have goals around. Because if your mental cues don't relate to one of those, you're probably wasting wasting your time so that's another aspect as well but like if you just take the hips um which i hadn't really done much work around the hips um for um with 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 technique but i I mean the basics is like particularly for power i mean like you want to click your hips in and get them really snapping and rotating um and for the short so so to get that hip rotation you really need to have balanced with your feet and the weight evenly distributed on the balls of your feet and that allows you to engage your hips for a to snap your sort of hips for a hook or a pull shot um but you see today like 
many of the big power hitters they open up slightly. Oh yeah. Um, and 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 so what what's really happening is that they're engaging their hips um, into the pro- process a bit like a baseballer, um, and they're creating as much power as possible. And they're giving them access to, you know, if they keep their back foot in a certain position, like they can sort of get access to the offside as well. But in our day, it was very much a side-on game, right? You know, and so that aspect has changed dramatically um, from being a real side-on game to an open game um, in in, in, in the shorter format in any case. Well, even bowling, how many true side-on bowlers do you see these days? Most of them are semi-open. 80% of them are semi-open. Hey, Bebo, what about some inner sanctum stuff here? Uh, you're, you're an older man that's obviously reflected on his life and his, his cricketing career. Gave us a lot of amusement over the years, the Bebo attacks, all right? So were they just purely instinctive at the time? And looking back, were they, were they actually help, helpful in, in that you just needed to get it to, to channel out? So I remember a time in Adelaide Oval getting, I can't remember if it was a test or a one day, you got out cheaply and you went and got a bucket of balls and you went and bowled bounces for about an hour to yourself. Mm. Um, there's numerous um, stories about it. I'm happy for you to bring up one or two. But in yeah. hindsight, did you need to do that to, to actually get it out of your system to, to get back into the game? No, I didn't need to do it. It was instinctive. I didn't know why I did it at the time. But one of the reasons why I got so angry is that I just used to put so much pressure on myself yeah. to perform. And you know, I was just 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 loading up on myself and it was just pure, pure anger internally towards myself. Um, and it wasn't always pretty, right? And it wasn't always helpful either. Um, no. So there were coffins that got thrown out of dressing windows as well. Was there? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I reckon. Yeah. Uh, maybe pads flushed down the toilet, I think. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and, and there was a few instances, inc- incidences like that. Um, yeah, and I'm not kind of proud of them. I didn't really mean to do them. I didn't certainly want to hurt anyone about um, or affect anyone, and inevitably I probably did, um, but I don't think they were helpful. And I think I think about the age of 27, halfway through my career, I, I, I kind of, when I went through my, you know, my sort of light bulb moment um, where, where I kind of thought, you know, look, I've got to relax, take the pressure off me, be a less pessimistic, take the pressure off, you know, I, I kind of made the decision that after I got out, I needed to address getting out because one of the things that happens is your sort of memories of how you behave stay with you and it becomes a habit. And so I, I definitely took the option to build down, you know, um, how I reacted after I got mm-hmm. out. So, look, I did change quite dramatically about, I reckon, at the age of 27. I chilled out. Uh, still, still needed a fair way to go to chill out some more, I reckon. Um, but, but I, I, I did improve in that aspect. So, but yeah, plenty of stories around Bev attacks at that point in time. Oh, they to, to be, I, I think, I reckon they were more amusing than than putting off teammates because even instinctively, you going away to bowl those bounces, you actually weren't offending the team in there. And and I remember another one where. There was a commentary um, commentator went through your dismissal and 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 you yelled so loud at the TV, maybe a couple of swear words that the Adelaide members sort of heard there. But for us, it provided a lot of humour. But it was interesting just to to, to reflect by that instinctively. Sometimes you've just got to get out of your system. Talk about getting it out of your system. You got the million dollar smile, and and you hit the weights when you were young. So you like uh, getting your rig. Did you ever do a photo shoot? With a top on, I reckon eighty percent. Eighty percent, you just took your top off. Look, you've got to you've got to give the fans what they want, right? Um, you know, and that was the demand back then. That, you know, they just kept saying, "Bevo, get your kid off." Um, and so, look, I was happy to oblige. If you got the goods, you've got to kind of you've got to 
you've got to run with it, right? Just, you know, if I kind of went to the beach, uh, went to a swimming pool, restaurant, uh, those types of yeah. things, I didn't, you know, I try to keep it to a, to, to a minimum where I where I sort of um, got them out. Yeah. Okay, other next fashion accessory. What 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 was the bandana stage? What what why did you rock that? That's a really good question, and I don't actually have too many memories about the bandana stage. Well, look, I yeah, look, I I think I mean I was always a. A trendsetter, obviously. Uh, I was obviously, I was obviously into my fashion, um, not necessarily in a good way. But I just try and think. I think I don't know. Was it news? Was it the influence of someone like Mo Matthews and Mike yes. when I got to 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 New South Wales and started playing with them for the first years? Uh, and I also remember being there was this brand or label that was big back in uh, Oxford Street. Uh, in Sydney, hot tuna um, that that had sort of patterns on the jeans, and I, you know, I remember having these sort of white jeans with patterns on them, and I, I, I thought I was pretty sharp, but look, you know, everyone's obviously got their own. Yeah, because um, I, I was such a fashion guru. What about back to music? A lot of boys brought guitars on tour, and they do to this day. I see Stephen Smith's jamming with. Um, a couple of musos at the moment, so we don't want to hear that. But you you were the only member I know who brought a bass on tour. Well, that's right, because we were a touring. Bass. Well, well, because at the time, well, why did I brought? I brought it because Shane Lee and Slats had their guitars, and I think we were touring for a couple of months or something, ridiculous, you know, like in Pakistan. Yeah, they were long tours back then, yeah. Yeah, and so you know, I—I I mean, I had—I—I I, I knew there was no way I was going to be able to learn the, the guitar, so I thought I'll have a crack at the bass. But with guitars, they—they can have acoustic guitars. You, you had an electric bass. You couldn't just casually bring it out. You had to set it all up. It was never going to work, was it? Yeah. Well, funnily enough, I—I I, when I got back, I never played it again. <laughs> So the proof's in the pudding. But, yeah, no, look, I think it was just because there was for something to do and I, I thought I might have been able to, to to get a handle on it, you know, and learn it inside out within sort of six to eight weeks. But, no, sort of I don't think we we played any songs. Maybe we played three or something like that when, when we were on tour. And also you did like, I reckon, power pop. Power Rock, you know, Bon Jovi. I remember a bit of Van Halen, but a band, and I saw it was the uh, 35th year of their release, an obscure glam band called Winger. Do you remember Kip. being into them? Kip. Kip. Kip Winger was the lead singer, I think. And he had a similar smile to yourself and played bass. So I was just thinking that, that that's an interesting role model, that. Yeah. And, you know, both obviously very good voices as well. Um, so... There's oh, lots geez. of comparables there. Um, and the other big one, too, that we might have just sort of thrown around was Striker. Was it Striker? It was like Striker. A, Striker. Yes. Was it? It's Christian rock band. <laughs> and they turned up to Canberra and they like, like no one had heard of them. There was about like a big <laughs> uh Basketball stadium there, and I went and watched them until about with about three thousand. But they played. I mean, they were great, great musicians. And I think that's the thing about rock bands, isn't it? They're just the uh, the musical side of things. They just they just kill it, and it's really it's it's amazing from an, a musical perspective how good these guys are. So yeah, I always enjoyed enjoyed the the rock. Um, when they I looked was, like bees, they dressed up in black and yellow striper. Yeah, yeah. They, they, were, they were cracking. They were a great band. So imagine um, if you'd gone on the Mars Singer and was able to punch out some Striper or Winger, you would have been right in your zone. Yeah, well, look, I definitely wouldn't have got kicked off first round. I would have probably made it through to maybe fourth or fifth. But actually, had I got through, <laughs> to, the, I got through to the second round... I, they, the song that they were going to have me singing was Dolly Parton, 9 to 5. That's doable for you. Yeah. 
Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition. Is that it? Yeah. Okay, last one. Love it. And you you would have touched on this, but it's a bit of a summary. You today, what would you say to a 25-year-old Michael Bevan in cricketing terms? Oh, probably two things. Um, Play a sport where they can't bowl bounces at you. (laughs) And or face Damien Fleming as much as possible. (laughs) You you can only play state cricket if that's going to happen. That's not very nice. Well, I, pro- I probably I, I did play a lot of state cricket, right? So, hey Bevo, thanks a lot. It's been absolute gold. Some real good lessons. I reckon we're going to get this out on on social media, and which you're um, quite prolific in these days, aren't you? As you're growing your social media presence and your coaching. So, good luck with that. And do, do you want to take us out with a bit of Jimmy? Oh, no. Oh, no. No. My rule is I sing once per interview, and I, I, I already had a crack at Dolly Parton. So, but it went Dolly, should, not Jimmy. I think you should add just a snippet of the Mars Singer, you know, um, as part of the interview. So, you, so we can all be reminded. Chase um, your dreams. Well, at least um, you come 11th. You would have been part of their cricket team, at least. Yeah. yeah. Well done, Bevo. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Bed and I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition. Well, the Aussies T20 tour to Bangladesh didn't go that well. A loss for the Aussies, but the one big positive note, the big quick debuted for Australia. He got a hat-trick excitingly in his first game. The first Australian, first cricketer, or sorry, first male cricketer to do it in T20 career. I'm talking about Nathan Ellis. Nate, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. When I say, when I say us, it's just me. But, <laughs> mate, let's get straight into it. What about Matty Wade, the captain, throws you the ball last over. There's so much pressure, but it's a role you've done well for, for Tasmania and the Hurricanes over the years. Talk us through that last over. Yeah, well, as you said, sort of the death, the death overs, um, something I've sort of gotten used to in the last few years with, with my, um, you know, minimal experience in the Big Bash. So, I sort of just almost go into autopilot mode now. I think my first, my first over was the one where I was a bit nervous and I couldn't really feel my legs when I was running in. But the, the death overs, it's the death overs is where I sort of um, come into my own a little bit and I, and I sort of just fall back to to what I've done. So um, yeah, it's a pretty simple goal. It's you know try not to get hit for six. <laughs> Everyone's pumped with their first wicket for Australia, aren't they? So a bit of adrenaline and then and the fizz, who bowl beautifully. Yeah. But knocked him over first ball. Yeah, yeah. So as you say, I got um, Mamadoula first ball, which is you know um, one of the, the big wickets. Um, so pretty cool to have as your first wicket, although he was on forty odd or thirty or whatever <laughs> he was on. So, um, but yeah, and then after that, it was literally just use the wicket ball, slow balls into the wicket, and hopefully they <laughs> they pick out the fielders, which fortunately they did. So um, and the yeah. last one, Ash Ash Agar took the catch. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of um, it was a funny one. He he was out at deep square leg, and the, and the 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 light pole was directly opposite him, and he reckons it went straight in because it looked like when I looked out there, he he was nowhere near it. So he, he turned a what should have been an easy catch into a pretty tough catch, and um, yeah, heart was in mouth for a little second there, and then yeah, chaos. I don't know how I ended up a third man. I was tackling Wadey down the down the third man. I don't know how I got there, but uh, yeah, obviously yeah, unbelievable. Because you've got a lot of exuberance anyway. That's what we, we love about you. But it must have, you know, for, for a tough T20 tour, well, we did well in the one-day series over West Indies, but there, there must have been a fair bit of momentum um, built from that going into the dressing rooms. Absolutely. And everyone um, was really happy for me. It was, it'll, yeah, it'll be something that I'll never forget. And the photos that I've already seen, I was covered in dirt I was come off the field and everyone was like embracing me and hey, it was really, really, it was a really cool moment. And um, I thought we were going to take like that momentum. You could feel it in the change room. Everyone was enough up and about. So it was a shame that we didn't quite get over the line. I thought it was going to be one of the great wins and and hopefully turn the tide for us in the series. But um, yeah, unfortunately it wasn't to be. Yeah, it wasn't a high scoring series, was it? Um, <laughs> yeah. No. Hey, Nate, are you a hat-trick sort of guy? Have you taken a few in your time? Um, Funny, so I was, it's, it's my first hat trick in in men's cricket. I've got a couple. Um, I got one for 
my junior club, the Illawong Menai Kookaburras, um, when I was 11, I think. And then I got one in uh, for Sutherland, my district, my rep, rep side, you know, oh, when yeah. I was about 15. But, um, yeah, first one in men's cricket. So, yeah, I guess no better place to do it, really. No better place. <laughs> Stop. I, now, also, we read so much about your, your journey. We all... Uh, we're playing cricket even locally. We dream to play for Australia, but sometimes we go in different paths. You know, some absolute guns get picked in every team and they captain, they dominate, and it's pretty quickly interstate and then onto Australia. But your journey's been a little bit different, but but a great story for for persistence and and passion and 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 constant improvement. Yeah, it's um sort of not been the the, the run of the mill. Um, normal story of a, of a of an Australian cricketer so especially a fast bowler um I was sort of always on the fringe of the the pathway squads I was always you know made the first cut but cut the second time around and um and that was pretty much the trend for my whole junior career um until I got got to about 18 and I played first grade cricket um at a I was 17 actually and I was sort of the same time around all the blokes playing in the pathway yeah. teams and that that was when I sort of started taking crickets not I always wanted to play cricket but it was a time where I was like I'm actually going to really have a crack here and I can compete with these guys sort of thing because as a junior if you don't make the 13s 15s 17s 19s you think it's the end of the world sort of thing um and you got to start looking elsewhere but um yeah I had a few good seasons in first grade for Ramick Peasham and then moved on to St George where um, yeah. I played with Trent Copeland and, and a few of the other like hey, Josh Hazelwood and Moses Henriques and Curtis Patterson. It was a great side. And from there, I was sort of a fringy for New South Wales. I played in the like the trial inter squad games, and um, I was in the Sixes Academy, and um, just sort of always, basically, just a glorified net bowler, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just paid the tolls on a Wednesday down to training and, and bowled to the boys, and um, but yeah, then. <laughs> Sort of the opportunity arose where there was potential to to go down to Tassie um, with no promise of a contract, but sort of like if you do well, you might get a game. And and at that point, I just finished my uni degree, so it was sort of time to either grow up and get a real job or or keep pursuing cricket. So I chose uh, chose the what latter. Degree, what degree did you complete? Uh, so I got a commerce degree, majoring in marketing. Um, yeah. But yeah, the thought of the thought of putting on a suit disgusted me. So. Um, <laughs> it was a pretty easy decision, really. Um, and I went down to Tassie, as I said, and it was from there where I think I sort of miss, um, sort of didn't take, I took for granted what I had in Sydney in terms of I was first time moving out of home and um, I didn't really um, know fully what the challenges were or how much everything costed and all that sort of stuff, really. So I learned that pretty quick um, because obviously I moved down for cricket. So I wanted to prioritise cricket in terms of being able to train all the time and play all the time and not say no to anything. Um, yeah. So when it came to work and stuff, it was a prioritised cricket. So therefore I chopped and changed to a lot of jobs in the short term. When I first got down there, I, um, yeah, I started as a, as a landscaper, but they wanted me to work Saturdays. Um, and then I got into a construction business, but the, the old tradies, they were absolutely smashing me. I was getting to Saturday and I couldn't move. <laughs> um, and then I was a furniture removalist for a couple of months there and, Again, they wanted me to work Saturdays and work late Tuesdays and Thursdays. So, um, yep, got sacked there too. <laughs> um, I think then, you're leading yeah. on the biology report with the guest. I normally get a guy too, you know, specialising yeah. in the area. So you're probably leading into it. Um, can you give us a guide too, being a door-to-door fundraiser for the World Wildlife Fund? Just give us some yeah, tips so, on what you learned so, there. <laughs> so this is a... Yeah, another one of the, you know, I was ended up being a jack of all trades, master of none sort of thing. I, um, yeah, got this job with a, it was a marketing company down there and, and they, their main, um, yeah, their main contract was with the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund. And I didn't really understand what the job entailed. I just knew it was something I could do in the hours would fit with cricket and it ended up being a, a door-to-door sales for the, for the World Wildlife Fund, getting subscriptions and, um, yeah, monthly subscriptions oh. to help save the animals. I'm not sure how much of the monthly subscriptions went to the actual wildlife fund, but it was, uh, yeah, bad. So you're walking into uh, people's yard and knocking on the door. 
Yeah, wow. so I'd go in over I'd go in over morning and rehearse we'd rehearse our our speech and then I basically <laughs> spend the next six hours knocking on um, doors of yeah either people who are home from work sick or are home with young children. So you're basically getting the door slammed in your face for, for six and a half hours a day. So it was um yeah that was about as tough as it gets. Character really. building, character building. Absolutely. What percentage was positive? What percentage? Oh, I'm willing to say five percent. Yeah, <laughs> it was. That was about, yeah. and, uh, that was about our. That was about our batting average in Bangladesh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Exactly. Jeez. Yeah. The pitches over there. Um, your pitch would have been good, I think, for for the fun. But the pitches <laughs> in Bangladesh, not quite up to it. Hey, mate. The one other thing, you're short. You know, mm. you're not short in in everyday life, but for the fast bowlers, I mean, they've even grown from from my era. You know, playing with. You know, McGrath and Casper and, and Diz and McDermott, you know, Rifle, you know, all probably 6'3 plus. Mate, you're competing with Starks and Hazelwoods and Stanlakes that are getting closer to, to seven feet. So there's how, how do you go about that? Um, and and you're competing with that. So so what, how are you a point of difference or how have you made yourself a point of difference? Yeah, well, that's it's, it's not something that I've sort of, it's just it's just sort of happened for me. It's something that I've dealt with since I was 13. And it was always that, as I said, when I didn't make the junior squads, it was always I wasn't the traditional, you know, tall, lean, skinny, um, bean pole of a thing sort of growing up. Um, and I've sort of taken the mantra on that, you know, they can't, if you're taking wickets, they sort of can't say no forever. Um, yeah. It mightn't be as efficient or it's sort of the more long way around, but. Um, that was sort of the man, you know, it wasn't a choice. It was sort of something I had to do really. It had no choice. So, um, but in, in, in the short term with becoming a professional cricketer, it sort of gives me a little bit of a point of difference. Um, cause pretty much every fast bowler is, as you said, that six, four, six, five. So, um, especially in white ball cricket, it gives me a point of difference that the death over has been able to sort of get under the bat. And I actually yeah. think it gives me a bit more of a margin for error with my Yorkers, um, just little things like that. I think it gives me a point of difference as it's not the the typical bowler that that um, the batters are used to facing. I actually had a conversation with Moses Henriques the other day about it. And he sort of said that the good length that the tall fast bowlers bowl, when I bowl that, it's still hitting the stumps. So it actually yeah. brings another couple of modes of dismissal in the game, not just, you know, caught behind or whatever, it actually brings bowled and LB into the, into the game for me as well. So the batsman feels yeah. like they have to play at everything. Um, yeah, in the so, old days, it was they miss you hit, but you yeah. know the taller, bouncier bowlers, um, they're going to miss, and you and you're going to exactly. hit. So, sort of just leading into, um, you know, a lot of pe- kids are doing pre-season now, or adults as well. You know, what what for T20 cricket, death bowling for 50 over cricket. You know, what what sort of skill set um, have you worked on, and and what sort of your mantra about going about that, going into a game to make sure you feel confident. Yeah, well, I'm sort of of the the mold where I, I really like to bowl a lot. It sort of it doesn't. It usually gives the physios and the and the SNCs a bit of a headache because with workloads and stuff these days, I have to be pretty careful. Um, but I'm yeah, I'm under the impression that if I have a lot of quantity and, and and feel like I'm nailing stuff for training, I'll naturally go into the game a lot more confident. But I think um, playing T20 cricket these days, you you've got to be ever evolving. There's so much footage and video and. And that's something I really took from this Australian tour is how much video the batters do on our opposition bowlers. It made me nervous thinking that yeah. our opposition are doing doing that to me. Um, so it was one thing that I think your your base your baseline is you have to have a good slower ball, a good Yorker, and be able to smash a hard length. I think that's pretty a pretty good base to start. But then working on slower balls, um, different variations of slower balls and different lines of of Yorkers. I think that's you know. Simple for us, it's it's for me, it's it's simple. It's a Yorker, a slower ball, and a bounce. So and then the lines vary, but for yeah. me, it's quantity. It's all quantity for me. If you if you're feeling confident, you're nailing it at training. You'll naturally go into the game because as soon as you second guess yourself in the game, it's sort of you know the start of your demise. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, for me, everything preparation. Um, sorry, training was about making sure that I didn't get into the game and, and had any moments where I go, oh, I wish I'd worked on that. Oh, there's two yeah, left-hand absolutely. opening batsmen. I should have been bowling to left-hand batsmen with the new ball. Um, oh, I haven't bowled a wide Yorker for a while. Well, I should have been doing that at training. So has it in your time in the last few years, you know, just with the workloads, have they stretched out a little bit? Um 
can you bowl more in more sessions as long as you're having more recovery? Yeah, so it's actually for something like this series or like the Big Bash where you've got back-to-back games, they're sort of really strict on the on the workloads. And when I first came in, it was they sort of let me go and I, I naturally just bowl a lot anyway. I've always done it. Um, but in the in the short term, I've had a couple of injuries. I, I did my yeah. – after my first season, I had a stress fracture in the off-season then I did my side at the end of last year. So they sort of started to try and get a bit more strict with me. Um, but it's a trade-off, as you said, you know, the trade-off of being a little bit sore um, as opposed to feeling confident in a game, I think it's worth it. I think, um, yeah, you know, as I, as I said, as soon as you're second-guessing yourself or wishing you did this or that at training, I think, you know, it's a no-brainer for me that if you're having to bowl an extra six to 12 balls at training, it's, you know, it's worth it, absolutely. Um, now you're quarantining at the moment in Adelaide. Yeah. Now, what's what's the future hold? Like the one thing I like from your two games, you enhance your reputation. And, and at the worst, obviously the team performance was disappointing. But as an individual, you know, you've come back and built a bit of a reputation. So um, where where do you go in the next couple of months? You know, obviously there's a there's a World Cup T20. Um, there's a lot of state cricket starting earlier. Um, or is it basically a bit unknown at the moment? Um, there's got there's definite goals, but it's one of those things with, with life the way it is at the moment and COVID wreaking havoc. It, it sort of I sort of can change from day to day. I mean, my short term goal or my short term dream probably is a better word is the World Cup. I'd love to be able to to go to the World Cup and um, you know the idea of winning a World Cup in the Australian colours oh. is just you know a dream, an absolute <laughs> dream. So um, yeah, hopefully I'm in the conversation there, but. Um, if not, I'm, I'm, I'm also really keen to get back to Tassie and we, the boys are in pre-season down there in the cold. So I'm, I'm, ha- I'm happy I've missed most of that. Um, <laughs> but I'll get back just in time for the, there's scheduled two one days to start the season and then we go into the Shield season. Um, so yeah, get out of quarantine here and back down to, with the Tigers and um, yeah, a few games and then into the Big Bash. Now, there is a reason I got you on today. One, to congratulate on your fine debut. But uh, I don't know if you know, but, uh, you know, when I debuted for Australia, I was lucky enough to get a hat-trick on, on test debut. And, uh, you know, we formed of a club. Of course I know. Yeah, well, <laughs> here we go. Yeah, so as you know, 27 years later, um, we haven't grown. You know, it's it's the AGMs are lonely. It's a table for one. Um, you know, I love winning the golf day. You know, there's no competition, <laughs> but, you know, when I've said I want to broaden it into the tennis day. I did send you an invite on social media to maybe can we merge the clubs, the, the T20 uh, debut hat-trick with the test one. I've had no response. I know, and it's hurt me. I um, Coincidentally, my both social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, got hacked um, a couple oh. of days prior to my, to my debut. Um, Faulkner so, yeah, was it James Faulkner? It must have been. It absolutely must Actually, have been. It was Faulkner. <laughs> so I've wanted to reply that. Yeah. And, um, and did you know about the club? I mean, is it talked about in in your first games? Well, I had um, Mitchell Stark presenting me my cap, um, yeah. and I couldn't tell you a word he said because all I was thinking about was the chance and the potential to join the Australians with hat tricks on on debut club. Um, or and you know what? Yeah, there's been about 95 bowlers in that position who have said to me they thought the same thing, and guess what? The nerves got to them, but not you, <laughs> not do. Is this That's official? Are we are we merging? Are we going to have absolutely? A if you'll have me, I want to be in it. So we're in. We just need to fill in the 50 over one one day cricket, which you could actually do twice, and then you can actually still do the test debut one. So let's target 50 over cricket. But what I'm excited to do is I'm actually going to be able to – we're going to get this this tennis game going, aren't we? Absolutely. I'll get the forehand. I'll get My, my backhand needs work, but my, don't hit it to my forehand. Forehand? Okay. I'm going to work on, on your backhand there. <laughs> hey, mate, so, thanks so much for, for joining us. Well done, firstly, just playing for Australia and uh, getting a little milestone for, you, for yourself. But just finishing, could you give us a pitch – you're knocking on my door. You've got the wild, World Wildlife Fund. What are you saying to me? Oh, I'll say to you, my, my star would be, hi, my name's Nathan Ellis, um, and then I'll hit you with a heavy 
do you know how many animals there are in the world that are neglected or underprivileged? And then I'll try and hit you right in the heartstrings straight away and I'll give you some Oof. percentage that might, might be made up, might, be, might, might not be, um, and then I'll have your attention, especially if I can see you have a dog or a cat in there. I might even reference the dog or cat to really tug at the heartstrings. And then I'll, Do you have I'll another favourite animal? Is there an obscure animal that you go to if they're getting a bit wobbly or, or is it better going with domestic animals? Well, I'll bring, I'll bring out my little pamphlet and we'll have a photo of a, a tiger or an elephant or something that looks like it's crying. Um, yeah. to pretty much really try and get you to start reaching for your wallet for me. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that's brilliant. I'll, I'll donate <laughs> to the Tasmanian tiger yeah. fund. There you go. Yeah. Nathan Ellis, thanks for joining us on the biology report. Good luck for the summer. Uh, thanks to Bevo as well. And listeners and viewers will be back next week. Thanks everybody. Keep swinging. Thank you. I bed and I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.